What a Sunday, my goodness gracious. Jesus is still good. We're in a uh, series looking at the 26 healing individual, the individual healing stories of Jesus. And we're on part 19. You guys can believe it? 19 weeks in a row, we're getting some good momentum. It's awesome. And we're learning to do healing ministry the same way the disciples learn how to do healing ministry. They learned to do it by watching Jesus. They didn't go to the Old Testament. Jesus had more miracles in two days of his ministry than the entire Old Testament put together. They learned it looking at the person of Jesus. So we're going to learn it the same way, not so we can just be impressed with how he did it, so we can learn to do it in the same way he did it. He did it as a man rightly related to God. Guess what? When you got saved, you were in right relationship with God. You actually have the same relationship with God that Jesus did. You've been adopted as his son. Are you guys still back in the tongues or are we okay here? <clears throat> this is English. You can listen here, all right? Now, Jesus was a man completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and we can do the same as well. So we're looking at him. We're seeing that uh, uh, the uh, Father is being revealed through Jesus, and we see what God is like. Our faith is increased. So uh, this is the 19th healing miracle. Most of them have been in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but here this one is completely in John, John chapter 9. And uh, we're going to read the actual healing, but you might want to keep your Bibles open if you have them, and I'll uh, read the rest of the story too because it, uh, it gets really good. We're going to hit some of those parts. John chapter 9, verse 1. <clears throat> As he, this is Jesus, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's it. Add some guilt and condemnation to this guy's horrible condition, right? Jesus answered, it was not this, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it, he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to them, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. This is powerful, all right? I get, don't you just love this guy? I think you're just going to love him more and more. If you keep reading at the end of the chapter, he actually starts debating the Pharisees. He's a pretty quick-witted guy. I like this guy. And so, the, um, so this is John chapter 9. Now, John chapter 7 and 8 give us the context for this miracle, okay? So John chapter 7 and 8 is going on the Feast of Tabernacles. How many of you guys ever heard of that? Maybe the Feast of Booths, you met in the Old Testament, the Feast of Sukkot, if you're into and, uh, more of the Jewish roots. So the Feast of Tabernacles, it was an annual feast that the Jews celebrated, and it's described in Leviticus, where each generation would remember how God protected them in the desert. And when they were wandering in the desert, they stayed in those little miniature tabernacles, those booths, those tents. God protected them. And the feast also looked forward to a time that God only, not only saved them in the desert, but there's a future time when, God is, uh, when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring salvation to his people. Okay, so it was something that looked back. That's what all the feasts did. They looked back, and they looked forward to a time when God was going to do something through the Messiah. Interesting, Jesus comes, and he's fulfilling every Jewish expectation. In the book of John, he takes a religious, um, these religious jars that are filled with water and transforms them into wine. So here's this dead religious institution that Jesus transforms with the life-giving wine of the Messiah. Pretty awesome. John chapter 4, um, there was Jacob's well, which had a big historical significance. And Jesus comes and says, all those things you were looking for that were anticipated in Jacob's well, I'm now that well. I'm going to give you a wellspring coming out of your belly. That's pretty powerful. 
In John chapter 5, Jesus heals on the Sabbath. They're like, you're not allowed to do any work on the Sabbath. You're only allowed to keep them alive on the Sabbath. Wait another day. Jesus begins transforming the expectations of Sabbath and says that um, it was always God's plan for, uh, for, for rest and restoration to happen on the Sabbath. Here he is transforming all these Jewish institutions. In John chapter 6, uh, he begins transforming Passover. And he says, listen, um, I am that lamb. I am that bread that came down from heaven and fed, your, and fed him. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. He begins transforming it. And they want to kill him. Here he is, all these Jewish expectations he's transforming. Now he's about to transform tabernacles here. So here's what was happening in tabernacles. It was, what, what, what? Oh, is that why I can't see? Thank you. <laughs> oh, there's people here. I thought I was just Sean, Rachel, and Mary. Oh, this is great. All right, things just got more exciting. This is good. All right, I want you to get this Feast of Tabernacles. They're looking back. Here's what's happening in the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a water and light ceremony. Okay, there's two images of water and light. So each morning, water was drawn from the Pool of Siloam. Where was it drawn from? Does that sound familiar? Okay, this is about to come in handy. So they took water from the Pool of Siloam, and they had it in this giant golden, they're called flagons. I don't even know what that is. So I'm just picturing like a giant golden flask. They would have it, and there would be this processional where the priests would come in. There would be shofar blasts. They would come. It was quite a walk from the Pool of Shalom. There would be these shofar blasts as they came in the temple. They would walk up the ramp, and there was these two silver bowls that were talked about in um, one of the Old Testament books. <laughs> I'm forgetting right now. It was talked about in there, and they would pour it out, and the water would swirl around, and it would uh, come out these spouts and pour over the altar. And uh, the rabbi said this was imagery that was picturing when uh, water came out of the rock when Moses did the miracle. It was picturing when water would come out, Ezekiel had a vision, when water would come out of the temple, flow out of the temple and touch the nations, okay? So that's this water ceremony. And so, um, so in this context, you imagine, here's these priests coming in, the shofar is going on. I'm not sure that, that sounded like a shofar, <clears throat> but um, you don't want me playing a shofar. I tried it one time at a 6 o'clock in the morning prayer meeting. We were all praying, and I saw a shofar land, and I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to wake this thing up. Like, this prayer meeting's pretty dead, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wake it up. Those things are not as easy to play as you might think. Like, I would never have, like, the trumpet lip, you know, you got to get it in there. And I do it, it sounded like a constipated kazoo. I was like, oh, you know, like, the, the prayer meeting went even worse. So there's shofar blasts coming in, water pouring out. Right in the middle, of it, you can just imagine the water swirling down. And in, uh, so, and Jesus says this in John 7, John 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, what feast? The Feast of Tabernacles, the great day, so the most people are there. Jesus stood up and cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those whom believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Can you see this? They're, all, they're looking forward to this day when living water would come. There's water flowing around, and Jesus says, Hey, if anyone's thirsty, I've got this living water that you're thinking about. He's transforming the water theme of, of tabernacles. Come on, somebody. That's, that's awesome. So in the morning during the feast, the water was drawn from the pool of Siloam and taken in a procession to the temple. In the evening, lamps were lit in the court of women, the very the center of, of the temple there. They would illuminate Jerusalem. So Josephus was a historian who lived during the first century. So when you picture, uh, picture candlesticks, you're not picturing like, like we have candlesticks. So there were these sticks with these giant bowls of oil with these wicks floating on them. And the priest would climb up these ladders, and they would light them. And it said it could be seen for 50 miles. So not only, not, not only lit up the city, it was a city on a hill that shined to the nations. So here's this huge light ceremony going on. <clears throat> and throughout the Old Testament, the theme of light was associated with the Messiah. It was associated with God's day of salvation. So here, 
The water's swirling around. Here are the lights coming up. Jesus says, hear this in John 8, right in the middle of Feast of Tabernacles. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. There's these giant candlesticks illuminating uh, Israel to be a light to the nations. And he's saying, hey, that light that you're celebrating, that light of the Messiah that you're looking forward to, right here, baby. He didn't say baby, but I mean, it's... Like, hold on, I, I didn't, I'm, is that the Passion Translation? No, no, that's not. And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus, here he is fulfilling the Feast of Tabernacles. He's the new Moses who would bring water out of impossibilities. He, uh, he is the new temple in which rivers of living water would flow to the nations. Jesus becomes the light of the world that will shine God's glory in the midst of darkness to all people. So we'll see in a few minutes, he's going to say again that he's the light of the world. And uh, remember, we just read that in John chapter 5. He's actually, in John chapter 9, he's actually going to illustrate the very truth that he's talking about. Okay, so, um, so Jesus says this, uh, I'm the light of the world. I'm everything you guys have been looking for. The religious authorities, they're not super excited about this. They begin debating Jesus, and he says, yeah, I am. I'm God, and they know exactly what he's claiming. They try to kill him. He walks out of there. So as he's walking out of the temple, now we come to the man born blind. I mean, you can, this is a pretty action-packed chapter here, all right? As he passed by, yeah, as he's walking out of the temple after they just tried to kill him. As he passed by, he saw, this is verse 1, John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. We know a few verses later that he was a beggar. Uh, he was a blind beggar who was blind from birth. And this makes him an unusual blind man because all the other um, uh, blind men in the New Testament that we read of, we never read that they were blind from birth. All the others, um, they, uh, some of it, it's very apparent that they could actually see. Remember the guy's like, I see men like trees. So we know that he saw it one time because he knew what trees were like. He knew what men looked like. So it made him kind of a curiosity on the streets of the city. And so um, it doesn't seem that he has a disease in his eyes. It seems like something was missing. Either he did not have eyes or his eyes were so deficient they couldn't even be called eyes. We're going to see more on that in just a second. And in, the, in those days, the only way for a blind person to survive was to either have rich parents or to beg. And so, um, so this guy, he couldn't even beg on this day because the Pharisees made a whole bunch of religious rules that says you can't work on the Sabbath. This happens to be a miracle on the Sabbath. You can't work on the Sabbath, so you're not allowed to beg on the Sabbath. Begging is working. And so all this guy could do was sit there in silence and uh, try and look hungry and hope that people would have mercy on him. And here's this chance encounter. Jesus passed by. Notice, I mean, like you see a lot of these other miracles are crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. They've got people bringing him to Jesus or going on behalf. This guy's got none of that. He's just sitting there. And there's something that's moved in the heart of God when he sees this man in this condition. Jesus passed by. And as far as this guy's concerned, this guy, you know, this is just another person coming out of the temple. He can hear Jesus and the disciples talking. We're going to hear it a little bit. And it's just, it's just another group of people. There's nothing special about him. And so in a sense, I want you to see, this guy doesn't even believe in Jesus at this point. Like, he hasn't pursued the miracle. It's not that he doesn't not believe in Jesus. He doesn't even know who he is. We're going to see that here in a little bit, all right? So he has nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus is just passing by, and it says he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Now, we've seen in other miracles where it says Jesus saw Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus saw the man being lowered through the roof. And there's different words for visual sight in the New Testament. The New Testament was written in Greek. There's different words for it. And this is not like visually took in information with his eyeballs. That's not what it means. It means to see inside. It means when Jesus saw the man, it means he took in the whole situation. He sees what others have missed. It means to penetrate. It means to go through the outward to the inward. It means to see the whole picture up and see what's really there. So Jesus, he's passing by and he sees, and this indicates the compassion of God. 
You're not just like, oh, blind guy. Oh, there's so many needs, so many. I mean, it's so easy to drive through our cities and see homeless people and see need and just see them as needs and not see them as a man. Jesus saw what's really there, and it rips his heart open. And notice it didn't say Jesus saw a blind beggar. It said Jesus saw a man blind from birth. <clears throat> Other people pass by. They just see a man in rags begging for pennies. Um, they didn't see a man. They just saw a shell of a human. But Jesus saw what was really there. Underneath the rags in this miserable condition was a man created in the image of God. And he sees him as a man. Listen, guys, I don't care how much people put you down. I don't care what they call you. I don't care what life is placed on you. When Jesus looks at you, he sees you as you were intended to be. He sees you as a man or a woman, a human being with dignity, created in the image of God. So Jesus sees a man. What do the disciples see? An opportunity for a theological argument. Chapter 9, verse 2. Just bless, bless the disciples' religious little hearts. Don't you just love them here? John chapter 9, verse 2. And the disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They're probably thinking they're impressing Jesus with their theological acumen, bringing him into the, uh, the contemporary arguments of the day. Some things never change. I mean, uh, so uh, God sees a person in need. Religion sees an opportunity to argue, right? It's interesting that they knew he'd been born blind. This guy must have been quite famous among the beggars, right? Maybe there's something special about him that we're going to see that uh, made him uh, different than all the other blind beggars. So Jesus sees a man, the disciples see a beggar, and uh, the disciples do not have a flicker of compassion. They go, go right to this sin problem. Here's this guy in misery and rags, uh, has, to make a, has to beg for a living. The disciples have no compassion. I want, do you see the difference here? Jesus sees beyond the rags. The disciples, they just see another need. Just, it's just somebody. Let's just talk about him. So he's born blind. There must be some terrible sin here, Jesus. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Can you see how desensitized they are? A person sitting there in absolute need, and then I'm going to begin putting the blame game, right? I don't know about you, but that convicts me. We need to ask God to give us the eyes of Jesus. It's easy to get desensitized. It's easy to see needs. It's easy to look around people in our church and even not see them as individuals created in the image of God who have infinite value to him. To be able to see what Jesus saw and never just see another person as another statistic. Listen, guys, Jesus never got used to suffering. He never got desensitized. Whenever he saw, uh, saw pain and suffering, inside of him, the very heart of God screamed out a horrified, no, this isn't the way it should be. That's compassion. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? I mean, if the guy was born blind, how can you sin in the womb? But the rabbis actually taught that you can sin in the womb. That's why they're, yeah, yeah, yeah good luck with that one. Like, yeah, yeah, what's the kid doing in there? Like, yeah, I'm, maybe some of those kicks were like a little passive aggressive in the, in the womb. I, I don't know what's happening there. I'm not, I'm not sure how they see that. So rabbi who sinned, this man or his parents? Man always focuses on the problem. God always starts with the solution. So there's a way to present the gospel called the Romans Road. How many of you guys have heard of the Romans Road? All right, so you start with Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You begin to go through Romans and see the solution. That's man's idea of presenting the gospel. It always starts with a problem. God always starts with redemption in mind. Yes. Revelation 13, 8, the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. God is always at work. And Jesus was marked off as the redeemer for fallen humanity before fallen humanity even fell. If you look at theology, they see there was the creation, there was the fall of man, then there's the, uh, the, the cross, and there's the redemption of all things. But God says, you know, before, before creation, before the fall, there was redemption. Redemption happened first. Why is this important? 
I'm underlining this because I know some of you have been brutally attacked by this kind of Pharisaism. It says if there's sickness in your family, if there's sickness in your life, if there's problems in your life, you must have sinned. And so what it does is it gives you the shame and the blame and the horrors of condemnation searching and sends you searching for whatever sin it was. Please hear the words of Jesus, John 9, 3. And Jesus answered, it was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What's he saying? Shut up. You're off base. This is not because of any sin that was specifically committed. Okay? Let's also get this. Uh, so this part is very awkward, this next part here, but we're going to make it simple. John chapter 3, uh, verses 3 and 4. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Keep looking at this verse. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. That's an awkward translation. So the original New Testament did not have any punctuation. Okay, it's just lines of words on a page. Okay, so um, let me read it to you with a little bit different punctuation. You guys ready for this? Because it looks like, well, it looks like what Jesus is saying. No, he didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. He's blind so that God, the work of God can be established. Okay, a lot of people might read it as, you know, God made this man blind for his glory, right? And, you know, I mean, how have you guys heard that? This person is sick for the glory of God. That's how a lot of people read this verse. He was sick for the glory of God, and now the glory of God can be displayed. Listen, he was not sick for the glory of God. He was healed for the glory of God. No one is sick for the glory of God. Steal, kill, and destroy is still someone else's job description. Okay, so let's read it like this with a little different punctuation. You guys looking at the verse up there? You guys ready for this? Um, so they wanted to start a religious debate. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents but in order that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me. You get that? It's a matter of emphasis and punctuation. Let me say it again. He's not born blind because he sinned, nor because his parents sinned, but in order that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me. This man's blindness, here's Jesus saying, this man's blindness has nothing to do with sin. This man's blindness is not an opportunity for religious debate. It's not whether or not, it's not what his parents did. The issue it is, what are we going to do? You see the difference? They want to dig up the past and see if there's a reason uh, for some sin and go through his family history and generational curses. Jesus says, forget all that mess. Sin has nothing to do with it. It's none of your business. It's not what they did. It's what are we going to do? Why? Because God always starts with redemption in mind. You see the difference in emphasis. Jesus said it's not about who's at fault. The question is, who is going to do something about it? The legalist wants to assign blame, forever finger-pointing, and trying to find the reason that you're not healed. But the grace of God, which is God in action, looks at that same opportunity and says, "Here's the, right in the middle of this mess, here's an opportunity for glory. Man, if we could only see like Jesus sees. Man sees a blind beggar. Jesus says, this is an opportunity for God's glory to come in. Who's going to do something about it? What do you see as you walk through life? As you come here on Sunday, what do you see when you look around at other people? What do you see, uh, what do you see that other people may overlook? See, whatever you see indicates who you really are. So let's imagine that, uh, I wrote this down, an artist, a real estate developer, and a preacher went on a trip together. Okay, so we got Ruth Ann, our artist. Ray Diani, our, uh, our real estate developer, and me, the preacher. We go on a trip, and we see this, uh, this land. It's as far as the eye can see, just beautiful green pastures. Everything's great. What's the artist going to do? The artist is going to get out her sketch pad. She's going to draw and begin to kind of get in the outline for a painting. 
What's Ray going to do? Ray's going to be thinking about how he can subdivide this into two-acre plots and all the luxury homes he can build on it. <laughs> and the preacher's thinking, how can I get a sermon illustration out of this? Right? Because who you are determines, how, whatever you see is determined by who you really are. All the disciples could see there's got to be sin, there's got to be shame. I mean, I share, I share miracle stories. I, 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 just, I, I shouldn't read the YouTube comments. So I, I, <clears throat> I did a healing sermon at Andrew Womack's. And I've read one of the comics, and the person says, oh, if this guy believes in healing, why does he wear glasses? I'm like, really, that's what you see? I wear glasses because they help me see. Like, like that's why I'm wearing them. Yeah, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, all they see is the, like, you're sharing healing stories that they should be going, wow, this is amazing. Praise God. Why has this guy got glasses? Is he sinned or has he got his parents? You know, like. Jesus sees a man. He sees his pain and his suffering. I shouldn't have read the comments. I admit it. I'm trying to stop. I tell you what, the spirit of slap just comes on me. I just like, what? Oh, my goodness. I don't know how Jesus did it. He's like literally like had thousands of angels he could have called and commanded to come wipe out the earth. I'm like, oh, I'd have done that several times over. <laughs> just from that one YouTube comment. <laughs> Do over. Heavens and earth, light, darkness. I would have started all over again. The disciples, all they see is sin, shame, shame, shame. Jesus sees a man. He sees him in pain and suffering. And he says, this is a platform for which God's glory can be displayed. Who's going to work on it? Who's going to work with me? Who's going to do the Father's work? <clears throat> this is, I mean, this is unconditional love right here. This guy isn't even asking for it. This guy hasn't done anything impressive. So does anyone else need to pray this prayer for me? Lord, give me eyes to see like Jesus. I want to have those eyes. I love John uh, 9.4 here. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's a day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus says we. Like, I would not have included the disciples in this game. These guys are like, shame, shame, shame. If I was Jesus, I'd be like, I need to do the works of the Father, you bunch of dogs, right? Jesus is like, no, no, no. Even though you guys don't have a clue, you're still included in the Father's mission. I got some good news for you. Even though you and I really don't have a clue about what's going on, we're included in the we. <laughs> I mean, they're still, they still got their fingers out, finger pointing at this guy. And Jesus is like, hey, we're going to be involved. We must work the whim whims. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Verse 5, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Remember Jesus already said in John chapter 8, right in the middle of the light ceremony, I am the light of the world. And here he picks it up again. He's, he's, he's going to transform the meaning of light. He's going to expand on the, uh, the meaning of light. Because the context of him saying, I'm the light in the world, is healing. It's interesting. Oftentimes, light and glory in the Old Testament were equated with each other. That means the light of the world is to be equated with healing. When Jesus says, uh, uh, when he says, I'm the light of the world, he's talking about healing of our innermost parts of our being, and our outermost parts of our being, healing of our mind, our emotions. Jesus is healing. He's bringing this healing light so that whatever part of us is dark, whatever part of us is, is groping as a result of the fall of man, he wants to bring his light to that. Listen, guys, in the presence of the light of God, there is healing. In the presence of the glory of God, there is healing. Uh, remember the old Italian prophet Malachi? I mean Malachi, remember him? He's speaking of Jesus. He said this, the son of righteousness, S-U-N, glowing ball in the sky, not S-O-N, S-U-N, the son of righteousness, and he spoke of him when he would, uh, in his resurrection, he saw him rise with healing in the rays of his healing. 
the lights, the rays that emanate from the person of Jesus is healing. Darkness is always associated with death. It's always associated with sickness and confusion and hate. Light means that I'm stepping into the light and now I'm healed regardless of my condition. Guys, there's energy in light. Have you ever read about the giant produce in Alaska? This is crazy stuff. Um, 1.38 pound carrots. A 10.5 pound cauliflower stalk. I mean, that's like a bowling ball. A 9.5 foot long gourd. 14 foot, oh, I'm sorry, 14 pound mushroom. 11 pound zucchini. 22 pound turnip. Like, how are these vegetables getting so large? Because they can bask in the sun for 20 hours or more a day in the summer months. That's how you get the three foot beans. One bean, three foot long. Worst gas in the world. Anyway, 40 pound beets. How is this happening? Because in the, in the sun, there is energy that's being released. In the, in the light of God, in the light, there's healing and energy that's being released. Jesus says, I'm going to heal this man. I'm the light of the world. That's the work of God. Light penetrating darkness and bringing God into that situation. And again, like, this guy isn't even asking for healing. No one's asking on his behalf. This is just the unconditional love of God in action. Jesus stops, he notices, and he's revealing the heart of God. I'm going to do something about this. Remember, when we see Jesus, we're seeing God in action. We're seeing God with skin on, okay? So many Christians have got this false image of God where God's waiting on you to have enough faith that you can bring it to him like some kind of currency, and he says, okay, now you've got enough to buy the, buy the miracle. You finally got enough faith. No, 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 no. That kind of image is going to kill faith. Trying to get enough faith is going to kill faith. Faith is created by looking at this God who was revealed in Jesus who is going to heal this man who doesn't even know it's him. All right, I'm sorry. Do I need to start from the beginning again? Feast of Tabernacles, water, light. Uh. You guys are still back on like the 40-pound beat. And, uh, yeah, yeah, me too. The bean, what, what was the bean? Three-foot bean. I'm getting stomach cramps just thinking about it. John chapter 9, verse 6. <clears throat> Having said these things... So Jesus says these things, you know, hey guys, it doesn't matter, it's not whether this guy's sin, this guy's sin, it's about who's going to do something about it. Having said these things, so that God can be glorified, <clears throat> John 9, 6, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. He then anoints the man's eyes with mud. There's a certain humor to this, the story. I want you to think about this. <clears throat> Put yourself in this guy's situation. There he is, sitting in the darkness. He just hears these people talking about him. He's probably... You know, going, oh, brother, here's some more people talking about me. Is it my sin? Is it theirs? No, did he say something about glory? Like, what's going on here, right? So then all of a sudden, he's like, did I just hear someone hawker? <laughs> like, I want you to think about how much saliva it makes clay that's going to be able to stick in someone's eye. It's not like a little, it's not like a little lady spit. We're talking redneck <laughs> levels of saliva coming out here. Okay. <clears throat> And so you can imagine this guy, here he is in the darkness. He all of a sudden, what, what, what's this noise? What, what, what's going on here? What's going on here? You hear some, like some kneading motions going on. I mean, can you just see this situation? No conversation. The guy is just sitting there, and all of a sudden, mud is pressed into his eye sockets. This wet, goopy clay is, is hanging through his face. Like, what is going on here? Why on earth did Jesus put a glob of clay in his eyes? Okay? Because well, remember when Jesus spit in the other guy, and we saw this before, where Jesus used spit and he applied it to blind people, and he's using sign language. 
Remember, uh, actually, when he was doing that with deaf people, remember, he, he was taking the, the spit and he was putting it on, on the eyes, he was putting it on the ears, those type of things. He was, uh, he was communicating, this is coming from me to you. This guy doesn't know anything about it. There's no sign language going on. All of a sudden, he's just attacked by this mud balls in, in his eye sockets, right? This guy didn't even, maybe didn't even know that spit was involved. So there's no symbol for this man. Why did Jesus put mud in his eyes? When's the last time anything like this remotely happened? Genesis chapter 2, when God took the mud of the earth and made a human body. What you have here is Jesus Christ as creator, taking mud like he did on the first day of creation and putting it into, his, um, putting it into this uh, man's eye sockets. This man was born blind. I believe he did not have the organs of sight. I believe he did not have eyeballs. Keep listening, I'm going to tell you why. People didn't even recognize him when he had eyeballs. He looked so differently. It wasn't just that his eyes were open. There was sunken sockets there. Listen, let's keep, stick with me here. I got some more proof for you coming here. Jesus is recreating the eyeball, and he's doing it the same way as he did the first time when he created man's eyeballs. Making some clay, fashioning it. This wasn't sign language. This was a creative miracle. Jesus is not healing eyes because the eyes were not really there. And if they were there, they're totally deficient. There's nothing there to heal. He's got to create new eyes, which explains all the fuss. Which explains, like, oh, is this the guy? And they're asking his parents, and like, you ask him. And you know, the people are like, it looks like him. I don't know. Because he looks so differently. That doesn't happen in any other miracle. Other blind people come back. They're not like, hold on, is this Johnny? Like, oh, is, that, is this him? No, you know, like, there, there's no confusion. It's causing an uproar in the whole thing. Why? Because something radical has happened here. I strongly suggest that's because he now has something in his eye sockets that weren't there before, and he doesn't look the same at all. He looks like a totally different person. He has eyes that are real eyes, and now they're not sure whether this is the same person or not. It also explains verse 32, uh, where the formerly blind man, he is now arguing with the Pharisees. Listen to John 9:32. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Jesus has been healing blind eyes for three years now. Okay, so this, this is nothing new. This isn't, this isn't unheard of. What's unique about this one? Where did he take it back to? The beginning of time. When God took clay and fashioned eyeballs for the first time. How are we doing? Jesus is amazing. He said, listen, what happened to my eyes has not been seen in this planet since the beginning of time when God took clay and made a human body at the beginning. That's the time where there was a creative miracle. So after putting clay in his eyes, Jesus is now going to talk to him. John 9, 7. And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Remember where the water was taken from in tabernacles? Pool of Siloam. Jesus has transformed our understanding of tabernacles, sending him back to this very same pool. Go to wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, the pool of Siloam wasn't just around the corner. I can tell you because I've been to Israel. Have I told you guys that? <laughs> they know me there. <laughs> I was the guy in the back of the bus getting car sick. That was me. Thank you, Jesus, for modium. And so, um, so the pool of Siloam, it wasn't just around the corner, all right? And so he's sending this guy there, and so he's going to have to have someone lead them. I mean, there's going to be some fumbling. And uh, he sends this man to the same pool where the priest got water for the water ceremony of the Feast of Tabernacles. And John says, you know, that he gives us the Hebrew word, Siloam, okay? Which, and then he interprets for us, it means sent, okay? The closest word in the New Testament Greek is apostle. So look at the symbolism. Here's Jesus, the word apostle means sent, Jesus, the apostle of our faith, who was sent from the Father, 
sends this man to wash in the pool of Siloam, the pool of apostleship, symbolizing that healing flows from the one who was sent from heaven. Then at the end of the book of John, he says, as the Father has sent me, I'm now Saloming you. Now put yourself in this guy's shoes. He doesn't know it's Jesus at this point. Like, 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 he doesn't know, he, doesn't, he hasn't heard it, he hasn't connected all the dots. You overheard him talking about you, somehow they're going to display God's glory. You know, mud stuffed in the eyes. Next thing you know, uh, yeah, he sends you off on this long walk. And you know what? He's going to pass many places where you could have uh, washed his face. But he specifically sent him all the way past all those places to the pool of Siloam to wash. And I tell you, this man, he's come to a great deal of faith. How do we know that? Because he obeyed. Okay? There, there's, there's, there's no communication here, but there must have been something about the voice of Jesus. There must have been something about his hands that inspired this man that, you know what? I need to listen to this guy. Something's going on here. The first expression of faith is obedience. In Romans, Paul calls it the obedience of faith. Okay? Faith is not a feeling. Faith is an obedience. Are you ready for this? You do not believe anything that you're not practicing. And you only believe the parts of the Bible that you do. You can say you believe something, but if it's not showing up in your life, it's more like a hypothesis or a theory. I tell you about that three-foot beam... Tell about that. So when this man obeys Jesus and walks past the first available water supply to go on this long trek through Jerusalem to get to the Pool of Siloam, he's begun to trust in Jesus, even though he's not totally sure who he is. It says, so he went and washed and came back seeing. So he washes off the mud, but there's not as much mud coming off of his face as there used to be because some of that mud became eyeballs. And he saw. Now there's more to this story that we can't cover uh, Jesus heals this guy on the Sabbath. The religious leaders are having a fit about it. But Jesus, it's almost like he gives them a backhand slap. So the religious leaders had made up all these stupid little rules around the Sabbath that weren't in the Bible. They made up these stupid little rules. And one of them said that you can't make, um, you can't make clay on the Sabbath. Although, I mean, make mud on the Sabbath because that makes you a bricklayer. What does Jesus do? <laughs> makes it. It says you could not knead anything on the Sabbath. I mean, it's almost like Jesus is like, one, two, oh. <laughs> Oh, here, there's a, and it says you couldn't use saliva for any, any, any healing purposes on, Saturday, on, on Sabbath. So Jesus, it's almost like he's like, oh, I got, oh, yeah. There's these three stupid rules. I'm using all of them on the day that you don't think I can do it on this day. The disciples were like, this is amazing. He broke the Sabbath. No, no. They wanted to kill him. And so, um, and what amazes me is these religious uh, leaders, you should read the whole chapter, okay? But, um... Nowhere in the Old Testament had anyone ever had blind eyes open. It was specifically said that was something that the Messiah was going to bring in. So here's, they're healing of these, hearing the stories of these blind eyes being opened, knowing only the Messiah can do this. Here's a guy standing here with brand new eyeballs. And what's the reaction? They want to argue over these little rules and these little details. You did it wrong. You did this. You're wearing glasses. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> And these are the guys who said, give us a sign and we'll believe. Here's your sign. Messiah, opening blind eyes, new blind eyeball, new eyeballs. And they're like, this, this man heals on the Sabbath. And so they disregard it altogether and they kick the blind guy, the formerly blind guy, they kick him out of the synagogue. He's brilliant. He's arguing with them. They said, who is this man who did this? And he's like, why? Do you want to become his follower too? Oh, you can imagine they're just burning. 
Wouldn't you just have loved to have been over there and just give the sarcastic clap? Oh, man. Way to roast those Pharisees. Sorry, I shouldn't have been reading the comments, okay? I'm sorry. There's a reason our comments are turned off on Zion, because I'm not spiritual enough to handle them on YouTube. John chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. So Jesus, listen guys, being kicked out of the synagogue is one of the worst things that could happen in the first century. It means that no one's going to sell to you. No one's going to buy from you. Okay, so this guy was ostracized from society. Now Jesus makes an appearance, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? That was the title for the Messiah. He answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. So this man comes to full faith. All right, what's it mean for us today? Again, guys, we need to, ask, we need to cultivate that Jesus look. We need to say, Father, give us eyes to see like you see. I don't care what situation you're in today, how impossible it is, whatever, uh, whatever, the, uh, whatever is going on in your, uh, in your income, whatever's going on in your body, whatever's going on in your relationships, whatever's going on in your family, whatever's going on in your marriage, learn to look at it as a platform for which the glory of God may be displayed. You might be thinking, you know what, my finances are a hot mess right now. Well, what if you made trusting God the most enjoyable thing ever? And you say, you know what, I'm going on an adventure. What if your family is a total mess right now? You know what, he's still turning gathering demoniacs into evangelists. He's still turning atheists into missionaries. Set your faith high. The reason that we're doing these, uh, going through these miracle stories together is so that we can reproduce these same miracles. I've actually seen a person who had a glass eye with a glass eye pop out and a new eyeball grow back in. I heard this story this week. Uh, one of the uh, teachers I really like, he was, um, he was there with a pastor in England. There was an evangelist preaching. And uh, someone came forward for prayer that had no eyeballs to receive prayer for healing. The, uh, the evangelist who prayed for him told the pastor later, he said, listen, um, my faith was not exactly dancing on the ceiling. See someone come up with no eyeballs, just got his eyes on Jesus, did the best he could, prayed, saw nothing happen. Six weeks later, um, over a period of six weeks, like little mushrooms growing inside, the man had eyes. Guys, these things still happen today. We're studying these 26 miracles of Jesus because they're all possible today. We can't read the Bible like it's in a galaxy far, far away. and it's like, like We can read it almost like it's a fairy tale. We need to read it like it's an invitation. The charismatic movement has produced two things. We're part of the charismatic movement, okay? Spirit-filled movement, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's produced two things that the Bible knows nothing of. One is the charismatic superstar with his supersonic gifts. Ah, and there's this superstar Christianity, and there's this great distance between what they can do and what I can do. And we're, okay, there is no super, the only superstar in Christianity is Jesus. I'm not trying to take away from the person's gift. I'm trying to have that gift points to the giver of the gifts. And the others produce an audience that watches him do his gifting. Guys, I'm not talking to an audience today. I'm talking to an army. Jesus is the hero behind every gift, and he said this in Mark 16. These signs will follow those who believe. What's the condition? Believe. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. He was talking about your hands, and he was talking about my hands. I thought this was interesting. I heard this this week. Um, in the early church, for nearly eight centuries of the early church, people would bring olive oil to the bishop. The bishop would pray over it and bless it, and they would take it home, and that became their medicine cabinet. For the first eight centuries of the church, healing was normal. They would pray and anoint oil with oil, and everybody was healed. 
It's interesting in the Bible, it's just in order to be a pastor, James chapter 5, it says, let the elders of the church, if anyone's sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church, let them pray for the sick, and the prayer of faith will make the sick person well. Just to be a pastor, it was understood, healing is normal. They stopped it in the 8th century because the heathens were trying to buy this oil from the Christians because they saw the miracles taking place in the homes. And then it got relegated to it was just the star bishop who was praying for the sick. And, and then after that, healing faded out of the church because it was never supposed to be for a chosen few. It was supposed to be the children's bread. Healing belongs to everybody. These miracles that we're looking at together is in order that you and I can begin to lay hands upon the sick, that you will that you'll pray with your family, that you will pray with your neighbors and your classmates and your teammates, and that you'll be known in the workplace as the person who prays for the sick and God heals. This is who you already are. I stand for closing prayer. Is Jesus amazing? You know what's super cool? He lives in you. Do you know why we look down when we pray? So we can see Jesus. He's right here. All right, that wasn't as good as I thought it was. All right. Jesus, you're awesome. And Lord, I pray that we would see every hopeless situation through the eyes of Jesus. Lord, I pray that hope levels would rise, that we would see any hot mess, any darkness, any drama, any sickness, that we would see, you know what, this is an opportunity for God's glory. It didn't come on us because of you, or because, or it came to you because of the fall of man, but Lord, we, we see you always had redemption in mind before any problem. And so, Lord, I pray for hope levels to rise. I pray that you give us eyes to see like you see. And, Lord, I just pray that every person in here, we would grow in our revelation that this is for us too. Heal the sick was a command you gave to every believer, not just a chosen few. So, Lord, I pray that our confidence in who you want to be through us would rise up in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our teams are coming forward if you need some prayer for, the, uh, prayer for healing.